Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. And iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. Although we associate Goop, G-O-P, with Gwyneth Paltrow's company, that term was actually used in a 1967 Elvis Presley movie as an acronym for a product that is formulated by Elvis, who, believe it or not, plays a chemist in that movie. What movie is that? So let's see how many of you did your homework, because I told you last week that I would ask this question. So we're looking for the name of the movie in which Elvis plays a chemist, 1967. And as usual, I will give you one other question. A product called Dream Water contains gamma-aminobutanoic acid, 5-hydroxytryptophan, and one other active ingredient. What would you think that ingredient is likely to be? So let me repeat. The product is called Dream Water. You can guess what it's for. And it contains gamma-aminobutanoic acid. It also contains 5-hydroxytryptophan and one other active ingredient. What do you think that other active ingredient is? <clears throat> so you can get to work on that one. And hopefully you did your homework on the Elvis movie. If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. And of course, you can also text your questions and comments to 514-800-007. That's the license to kill, right? And as soon as I mentioned that, what do you think of? You think of the most famous secret agent in the world, creation, of course, of Ian Fleming, and that is James Bond. But have you ever wondered where that 007, so instantly recognizable, where does it come from? Well, there's one theory, that Fleming's research into spy activities, and we know that he certainly did do that, revealed that one of the great British successes during World War I was the cracking of a German diplomatic code, and that code was 0070. Well, it seems that uh, that number just uh, struck a chord with Fleming. He just shortened it to 007. Not a bad story, but you know what? There's an even more captivating possibility. I like this one. The idea may have come from one of the most enigmatic, fascinating individuals in British history. And that was John Dee, often referred to as Dr. John Dee. He was a 16th century mathematician, astronomer, navigational expert, cartographer, book collector, explorer of optic and chemical phenomena, and he would certainly qualify as a scientist, if only that description ended right there. John Dee, though, was also into astrology, sorcery, conversing with spirits, and fortune-telling. He believed he received guidance from angels, including advice about sharing possessions with others. That included wives. A youthful prodigy, Dee was educated at Trinity College, Cambridge, 
where he first showed an aptitude for science when he helped stage a performance of Aristophanes' comedy Peace, in which the title character ascends to the palace of the gods on the back of a gigantic dung beetle. Well, Dee built a mechanical beetle that was so realistic, the audience believed it could only have been created with the help of sorcery. And with that, the seed for a reputation of having magical powers was planted. This was furthered when in 1558, Dee wrote a letter to Princess Elizabeth, who apparently was in a depressed state, and he said, do not despair, as the gods have indicated to me that you shall become the queen in another four months. Indeed, four months later, Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, died, allowing Elizabeth to ascend to the throne. Out of gratitude, the young queen appointed Dee as her personal astrologer and advisor. He proved to be so helpful that he was given the task of gathering intelligence about foreign rulers and reporting directly to the queen. A secret agent, as it were. These reports that Dee sent back to the queen were not signed with his name, but rather with a symbol of two circles flanked the horizontal line on top and a vertical line to the side. And that configuration can be interpreted as the number seven. The suggestion is that the circles represented eyes, meaning the report was only for Her Majesty's eyes, and the seven was there because it was the alchemist's lucky number. Dee was into alchemy. About that, there is no doubt. First, there's the famous 19th century painting by Henry Gillard Glendoni, depicting Queen Elizabeth and her courtiers watching Dee perform a chemical experiment. He is clearly seen pouring something from a vial into an open fire, and that's in a little brazier at his feet. That looks very much like a demonstration that we commonly carry out in our chemistry lectures, sprinkling a little gunpowder into a flame. Dee documents other experiments in his writings, including the making of silver chloride. Although not completely clear, it seems that he reacted silver with nitric acid to form silver nitrate, which then yields silver chloride on reaction with salt. His indulgence in alchemy is best demonstrated by Dee's association with the infamous occultist, self-declared spirit medium, and alchemist Edward Kelly. Having once been convicted of forgery, Kelly's ears were cropped as punishment. So now when you look at that painting by Glendoni, you will see Kelly seated beside Dee with a hat that covers his disfigurement. Anyway, Kelly had sought out Dee in 1582 after hearing of his efforts to foretell the future by gazing to a mirror made of obsidian, that's a volcanic rock, and that had been introduced to Europe by Spanish explorers who had discovered it uh, in, uh, in Mexico, where natives used such mirrors for divination. <clears throat> and you can impart a shine to this volcanic rock by rubbing it. With what? believe it or not, with bat droppings. Why? Because bats only digest insects that they eat partially. 
And that means that some of the insect skeletons remain in the fecal matter that is released by the bats. And that makes bat feces a functional abrasive to polish volcanic rock. And that's what natives in Mexico did. Anyway, the mirror that John Dean D used is now on display in the British Museum along with this crystal ball. Also on display is a clay tablet with all sorts of occult symbols that Kelly used in his communications with angels that he would then interpret for D. One of these messages was about the need to share all earthly possessions, including wives. And yes, that meant D and Kelly swapped wives. One of these children is thought to have been fathered by Kelly. Anyway, Dee and Kelly traveled through Europe, Kelly claiming to have discovered a powder that would mutate metals into gold. And Dee certainly bought into this. In Bohemia, Kelly was actually imprisoned for a while after he failed to produce the metal as promised. So what happened to Dee eventually fell out of favor when Elizabeth was succeeded by James I, who abhorred divination and anything to do with the occult, and uh, the man who was once the toast of the royal court, and who had in fact amassed one of the largest book collections in England, over 3,000 volumes. John Dee died in poverty. But of course, we do have that famous picture. And I would urge you to look at it because it is, of course, very easy to find on the internet. All you have to remember is that it was painted by Glindoni, G-L-I-N-D-O-N-I, and um, it's about John D, and that's D-E-E. -E. And you'll see everything that I talked about. You see him doing the experiment, and you see Kelly sitting with the hat that covered where his ears would have uh, been. But there's something else very interesting about that picture. It is not <clears throat> exactly the original way that Glendoni painted it, because the artist went back and painted over some of his earlier work. Because in the original painting, as we now know from x-rays, a ring of skulls surrounded John Dee. And that suggested his sort of dual, dual personality, both as a scientist, as shown by the experiment was doing, and, and as an occultist because of the ring of skulls around him. But apparently the gentleman who commissioned this uh, painting didn't like the idea of the skulls and asked uh, Glendoni to paint over it, which, uh, which he did. So now the, the painting uh, no longer shows any kind of link uh, to occultism. And uh, that, that is, uh, in one sense, too bad, because one of the most interesting facets of John Dee's life was that, that he uh, was a pretty strong scientist, but nevertheless, he had these visions of, of angels and of being able to speak to them. So now you've learned a little bit about John Dee and Queen Elizabeth and the link between Queen Elizabeth I and uh, James Bond, because, of course, it was Fleming selection of 007 that made James Bond famous, and he may have gotten the idea from John Dee. Okay, let's go and check traffic. You're listening to Dr. Joshua. We'll be right back.
science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I think we may have an answer to my question about the Elvis movie in which he played a chemist. Let's go to Rick. Hi, Rick. Hey, Dr. Joe. How are you? Mr. Rick here. Good, good. So you have an answer for me. Yeah. <laughs> you two are a little curved. Eh? It's clam bake. Yes, it is clam bake. Very good. <laughs> you yeah. did it good, though, Dr. Joe. You, you <laughs> we were thinking of a uh, change of habit when he was a doctor. Anyway, uh, so you have to look it up, right? Uh, no, well, uh, no, I know that he, he played opposite Mary Tyler Moore in, in uh, Change of Habit, but uh, in Clambake, no, you know, it's good you're promoting that because I think it's underrated. You know that there was the one movie that Elvis disliked. He said it was the worst movie made. Anyway, you know, it, it's kind of rare that chemists are portrayed in a positive light in, in films. I mean, you know, it's usually the absent-minded professor or, you know, some crazy uh, mad scientist. But anyway, here, Elvis is uh, sort of portrayed in a positive way as a clever chemist who formulates a resin to fix a damaged high-performer's boat, and that allows it to win a race. And, of course, he wins the girl at the same time. And in this movie, GOOP stands for glycol oxyoctanoic phosphate. It's a chemical name that makes no sense. But it's not absolute total nonsense because oxy can refer to epoxy. And octanoic acid is a real molecule. An epoxy group incorporated into its structure would create a site where ethylene glycol could react and cross-link with other molecules and form a resin. Uh, something like what happens when linseed oil is, is cross-linked in oil paints and, and varnishes. So it is mostly nonsense, but not, you know, not 100% nonsense. Anyway, uh, it's an interesting movie to watch. I, I did watch it. Uh, make sure that the scenes I talk about really are in there, and they are. And uh, I would not uh, say that it is a classic, but there is actually one a dancing scene in there that lasts about three minutes which is really very, very good. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the movie supposedly uh, takes place in, in Florida, but uh, it was filmed in California. And it makes for an interesting oops in the movie because uh, there are a couple of shots in the evening where you see the sun going into the ocean the wrong way, right? Because... Uh, uh, in uh, in California, of course, uh, the the sun would go into the uh, into the ocean, whereas in Florida it would rise out of the uh, ocean. Uh, so, but I guess they didn't think that that really mattered. So, anyway, very good. Uh, thanks for that. And you obviously are an Elvis fan. Yes, thanks, Doctor Joe. You sound like a scientist. <laughs> yeah, I, I try. I try. I I. I I play that, uh, I sometimes play that role. No, yeah, so, very good. Okay, thank you. All right, so we've got um, one question answered. The other one that I'm still looking for an answer for is a product called Dream Water. So that gives you an indication what this is for. 
contains gamma amino butanoic acid. It also contains 5-hydroxytryptophan, and it has one other active ingredient. That's what I'm looking for. What would you guess that active ingredient is, given that this is dream water and I gave you two other substances that should provide a, a clue? Okay, but let me now replace my, uh, my question here with another one. And um, uh, Octopussy, which is a James Bond movie. And in it, uh, Q, who of course supplies Bond with all of his uh, amazing paraphernalia, he presents Bond with a fountain pen that contains a liquid that 007 later uses to dissolve the metal bars of a cell where he has been incarcerated. My question is, what is the liquid in that pen? In the pen. What is the liquid in the pen that James Bond uses to dissolve uh, a metal? Uh, James Bond. I, I love James Bond movies uh, for several reasons. I I think that they're just you know very spectacularly made and edited. It's it's neat, and they also have a fair amount of science in it. Usually not very reliable, but uh, it always um, provides an opportunity to get into a discussion and that's just what i'm going to do tomorrow as uh, as you know for the last more than 30 years i've been doing a, a public lecture at the <clears throat> eleanor london public library in Colts and luke the first monday of of every month but obviously because of covid we have had to resort to to zoom and uh, it works well all you have to do is go to the uh, eleanor london library website and you'll see the link there, and you can join us tomorrow at 2 o'clock for the science of James Bond. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world, this will work. So all you have to do is get the link by going to the Eleanor London Public Library, and you'll see the windows there for programs, and you can find it. Uh, and uh, join us tomorrow at 2 o'clock. We're going to talk about the science of James Bond. And uh, there's a lot to talk about there. We're going to talk about Goldfinger and the business of using a laser in an attempt to bisect James Bond. We'll talk about uh, Goldfinger's plan with Fort Knox. Pretty interesting science there. I'm also going to take a look at Moonraker and Casino Royale. And from Russia with Love, each of those has some interesting science uh, associated with it. So we are uh, going to take a critical look at James Bond uh, tomorrow. The next James Bond movie, uh, which already was supposed to have come out, uh, but they keep pushing it back. It looks like now it's going to be October or November. And I think that they have uh, pushed it back because uh, they want the theater audience. They don't want to release it directly to Netflix. They want the big bucks with the, the theatrical release. And I understand the plot is pretty interesting in this one because uh, it's five years after the last uh, uh, film and James Bond has retired from the Secret Service, but he is called back into service uh, by Felix Leitner, who's his American uh, colleague. And... Uh, what is, is noteworthy, I think, is that he has already been replaced as, as a secret agent by another 007, and uh, that happens to be a woman. 
I think that they are setting up for possibly the next James Bond movie in which Bond, maybe Jeanette or Janet or whatever, and uh, it's going to be a story of a female secret uh, agent. I think uh, there's going to be some controversy over that, of course, because uh, uh, James Bond uh, was introduced by Ian Fleming as, as a specific uh, character. And uh, Fleming probably would not like it uh, if it was changed uh, to such an extent. Well, we'll see. Uh, but I think as long as they, you know, they provide the the chases and the uh, fantastic scenery and the gizmos and, of course, the women, uh, I think people will uh, enjoy James. Uh, so we'll see whether the next James Bond is going to be uh, a woman or or not. Of course, there's also a lot of guessing that if it is not a lady, uh, who is go- who is it going to be? What uh, what actor is uh, uh, going to replace uh, Daniel uh, Craig, who says he doesn't want to do it anymore? And one of the reasons he doesn't want to do it anymore because he says that it is uh, too trying. And he's had too many injuries uh, in um, you know, uh, filming some of the scenes. Okay, so we still have questions hanging out there. You, you know what they are. Go looking for the answers. And uh, right now we're going to take a break and check for the CTV News. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Okay, let's talk about the great sporting event of this weekend. No, it's not hockey, it's not baseball. Is the annual Nathan's hot dog eating contest, which just finished about an hour ago. And Joey Chestnut remains champion of the world. Believe it or not, in 10 minutes, he downed, get this, 76 hot dogs and buns, surpassing his own record of 75. And this is quite a major victory because the second place finisher was Jeffrey Esper with 40 hot dogs and buns, followed in third place by Nick Wary with 44. So this is an uncontested triumph here for Joey Chestnut winning by 26 hot dogs. How he does it, pretty difficult to explain. Why he does it? is not so difficult to explain. Believe it or not, there is significant money in competitive eating. You get all kinds of offers for commercials, etc. And Joey eats not only hot dogs, he eats asparagus as well. And he holds the world record for that as well. And that's an event that takes place at the Asparagus Festival in Stockton, California. And uh, there he holds the record with 12 pounds of tempura deep-fried asparagus uh, that he downed in 10 minutes. There have been worthy challengers there. Uh, Some people have come close to to Joey, 
but uh, he has not been beaten. There are other such contests as well about uh, eating. There's the World Oyster Eating Championships in New Orleans, and uh, 35 dozen oysters in eight minutes there. And uh, there, Joey beat out Juliet Lee, who I note happens to be a former chemistry professor. So who said chemistry professors don't know how to have fun? And you know what they say about oysters and aphrodisiacs? Actually, they say the same thing about asparagus. This reputation can be traced to the stalk's shape, which resembles a rather significant part of the male anatomy. There's no scientific evidence for any aphrodisiac effect, but on the other hand, nobody has tested that possibility either. Pretty difficult to carry out a proper double-blind controlled trial, wouldn't it? After all, it is quite obvious if one is eating asparagus or not. And even if the texture and taste were somehow masked, the smell of urine produced within a short time of eating asparagus would be a giveaway. Well, maybe not. And therein lies a great mystery. It seems not everyone can identify an asparagus scent in their urine. Is that because not everyone produces it, or because not everyone can smell it? Okay, let's sniff around there a little bit. Although asparagus has been eaten for millennia, curiously, the smell it imparts to urine was noted, not noted until physician John Arbutnot described the fetid aroma in 1731. This may have to do with the introduction of fertilizers such as ammonium sulfate, which serves as a source of sulfur for the sulfur compounds responsible for the smell. As early as 1891, methane thiol was identified as one of the culprits, although today we know that several other compounds also contribute to the fragrance, with aspargusic acid being a key player. The first real scientific investigation of the asparagus effect was undertaken in 1956, when researchers at Oxford University examined urine collected from a random sample of 115 people who had eaten three to four sticks of asparagus. Chemical tests revealed the presence of methane thiol in 46 of the subjects who were termed excretors, while 69 were found to be non-excretors. But no smell tests were performed. The researchers just assumed that methane thiol was responsible for the presence of any scent. Because some subjects produced methane thiol, others didn't, the conclusion was that the production of asparagus smell in the urine was genetically controlled. Well, that was challenged in 1980 by a study at Hadassah Medical School in Israel, which suggested that everyone secretes the odiferous compounds, but people differ in their ability to smell them. Subjects who could smell the odor in their own urine could all smell it in the urine of anyone who had eaten asparagus, whether or not that person was able to smell it himself. So to the scientists, it was the ability to smell the sulfur compounds that was genetically determined, rather than the ability to produce them. The stakes were then upped in 1987 when a group at the University of Birmingham fed asparagus to over 800 volunteers and had their urine sniffed by a panel of judges who had previously demonstrated an ability to detect asparagus scent. Half the subjects were found to be smell producers and half not, once again implying a genetic difference in production, at least in the British population. And then along came the French, apparently demonstrating that they can outpee the Brits when it comes to sulfur compounds. At the University of Strasbourg, 
103 volunteers all produced smelly urine after downing five sticks of asparagus, although the detection method was not disclosed. So either the French all possessed the excretion gene or the judges had genes that conferred hypersensitivity to the smell. Americans, it seems, are not quite as potent as the French, only 80% of them providing pungent urine after consuming asparagus. Granted, the question of smelly urine production after eating asparagus is not an earth-shaking one, but nevertheless, it's interesting. Perhaps the most remarkable aspect of the problem is that despite much effort, we still don't have a clear-cut answer. The asparagus-urine smell relationship is an excellent example of how difficult it can be to come to conclusions in science. If we can't even solve the mystery of asparagus taint in the urine, which one would assume to be a relatively simple chemical matter, how can we hope to determine the effects on our health of the myriad of substances to which we are exposed? In any case, the presence or absence of asparagus scent in the urine has no health consequence. But consuming asparagus does. Whether green or white doesn't matter. White asparagus is grown in such a way that the stalks are always covered with earth, preventing the stimulation of chlorophyll production by exposure to the sun. Asparagus is an excellent source of folic acid, one of the B vitamins, which may offer protection against heart disease and dementia. But 8.5 pounds or 12 pounds of deep-fried asparagus is not the way to go. And I suspect that record uh, will be broken, probably by Joey Chestnut himself, uh, who always likes to be pushed to new heights. In fact, recently barely edged out deep dish Bertoletti in the World Matzo Ball Eating Championship, downing 78 balls to the challengers 76. Well, of course, uh, we always wish the best of luck to all participants in such contests, uh, but uh, one wonders about. Uh, you know, the health aspects of eating so much of any single food. But interestingly enough, when you look at uh, Joe Chestnut, he doesn't look like he's capable of downing 78 matzo balls or certainly 76 hot dogs. So there you go. There's our sports update for today. Joey Chestnut, the 2021 Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Champion, 76 hot dogs downed in 10 minutes. One would think that that is hardly possible, but it turns out Joey did it. Let's go to Doreen on the line. Yeah, good, good afternoon. Uh, it's not really your field, but it's very intriguing. I heard yesterday uh, on the, I did not hear, it was on the other line on the news on RDE that science people uh, discover that every 27 and a half million years, the Earth has a pulse. And that explains all the phenomena ecological that we are going through today. And they repeated that all the day, uh, underline on the news. The Earth has a pulse? Uh, the Earth has a pulse every 27 and a half million years. And is this the 27 millionth year that Probably. the Earth is pulsing? Probably. <laughs> I, I know it's not your field, but you are very curious. And you'll try to find, because it was on the other line. RDE is quite serious uh, uh, station, you know. 
Okay, we will look into the pulse of the earth. We will take the earth's pulse. How's that? Okay. Okay. I will check that out because we do have a few minutes coming up now when we're going to check traffic. So while you are listening to the traffic situation, I'm going to take the pulse of the earth. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, I have taken the pulse of the earth and it is alive. In this case, the pulse refers to cycles of things like earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, uh, rises in sea level. And according to a study that was carried out by Michael Rampino, professor at New York University, uh, these seem to occur in pulses, that is cycles in uh, periods that are spaced out uh, by uh, 27.5 million years. He looked at the last 260 million years, he analyzed disastrous events and came up with the fact that every 27.5 million years or so, there are these epic events that have catastrophic consequences. <clears throat> but before you begin to worry about the world coming to an end, according to his calculation, we are roughly in the middle of a 27 and a half million cycle so that we have uh, at least you know 12 or 13 million years to go before we get another pulse that is another cycle of some catastrophic uh, event so i wouldn't worry about that it doesn't mean that we don't worry about what is going on right now uh, because of course uh, temperature changes climate changes. Uh, this is a very real concern. But of course, these days, everything seems to take a backseat to um, COVID. And uh, especially when, uh, you know, it looked like we're on the right track. And now we start hearing more and more about the variant, especially the Delta variant, which which comes from, from uh, India. And uh, we're finding some uh, really scary numbers about people who have been double vaccinated and nevertheless are still coming down with uh, with COVID. But still, no question that the best chance for uh, trying to, to solve this problem is vaccination. The mutations, the variants, can only occur in infected people because it is only when the virus replicates that you can have a mutation occur. And of course, if that mutation is beneficial for the virus, then the mutated virus will survive in someone's body, multiply, and then they will infect someone else with that mutated virus. But you cannot have a mutation in an uninfected person. There are no mutations that occur outside of the body because the virus needs a human cell, or at least an animal cell, in which it can replicate. So the whole problem with all of these variants is that there are too many people who are infected with the virus, and the only way to cut down on that uh, is through vaccination. 
well obviously also when it comes to to uh, herd immunity because people who have already had the virus are less likely to be reinfected although that of course is also not impossible to be uh, reinfected so um, uh, the the benefits of the vaccine as i've said so many times greatly outweigh any kind of risk and the as far as we can tell right now the vaccines work against the variants uh, so get your vaccine, get your vaccine. It doesn't mean that it's going to solve all of our problems. I think we still have to do distancing. We still have to, to you know, be, be careful uh, in very large gatherings. Uh, I, I think also the time has come, though, that you cannot be neurotic about this. I mean, we can't spend our life living like, like hermits. So there are some risks that uh, uh, we need to take. But... Uh, uh, the best thing to do is to get the vaccine. All right, a uh, question uh, came up, uh, text, about whether or not there's any update on the dangers of dark hair dyes. Uh, no, I've talked about this uh, many times. Uh, originally, when paraphenylene diamine was introduced in hair dyes around 1980, uh, there were uh, allergic reactions, and also we, we have the possibility that paraphenylene diamine is a carcinogen. However, you have to have significant exposure. The, uh, the hair dyes have uh, certainly been modified these days to use safer substances, and uh, I wouldn't have any real concern about using the dyes. However, there's always the possibility of allergic reactions. And this can happen even if you have used a dye successfully for a while. That's why hairdressers will always tell you uh, that before you do your next session of dyeing, you check a little bit either behind the ear or the inside of the elbow, wait to see whether or not there's a reaction before you go ahead and, uh, and dye. Now, the question that I asked about uh, a product where I gave you two ingredients, gamma amino butanoic acid and 5-hydroxytryptophan, and I told you that this product was dream water. And I asked, what is a likely third ingredient here? I had a text answer, which is actually a very reasonable one. Although it is not the correct one, well, certainly not for this product, but it, I guess it could be. And the, the answer uh, was valerian root. Well, obviously, given that this product is called dream water, uh, it is supposedly a sleep aid. And uh, the two ingredients that I mentioned are both anti-anxiety agents. Uh, Gamma-aminobutanoic acid is a neurotransmitter, and it certainly has been linked with reducing anxiety, and so has 5-hydroxytryptophan. Uh, so the question was, you know, what other ingredient might there be that will enhance sleep? The one that is actually in this product is melatonin. But the valerian answer is not a bad answer because valerian root also has uh, uh, properties of, of uh, uh, making you drowsy, although it isn't all that effective. Uh, also, with valerian root, you have to deal with a rather significant uh, smell issue. <clears throat> Talking about uh, uh, the ingredients, though, in this uh, dream water, they uh, actually do have some scientific uh, uh, evidence behind them. Uh, the uh, melatonin is the one that I think has the most evidence in terms of inducing sleep. 
although I've uh, found that the pill, pill form doesn't work that well, uh, I've had more success with the melatonin spray. And this is something that you spray just underneath the tongue, so it goes directly into the bloodstream. And as a general rule, substances that are introduced in, in that fashion go to work more quickly. This is why nitroglycerin, which is used for angina, uh, is uh, in the form of sublingual tablets or sprays, because then it goes directly into the bloodstream. When you ingest something orally, it first goes to the stomach and then to the intestine, and then into the bloodstream, and then it goes through the liver. And the liver, of course, is the body's detoxicating organ. So it will start to break down substances. Whereas if you get it directly into the bloodstream uh, from uh, these sublingual tissues, then it has uh, the melatonin has a chance of going to the brain before it gets degraded by the uh, by the liver. Another text that I just got in diphenhydramine, which is the active ingredient in Benadryl, which certainly has uh, sleep-inducing uh, effects, and that also could have been the other ingredient in the dream water. So I'm glad to see that you guys are up to date on the machinations of science, or at least are doing your homework. Well, we are once again out of time. The hour has flown by. Time to say goodbye, but only for a week, because we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.